Well, good evening. Welcome to this, the first of our public lectures this academic year in LSE's Department of Media and Communications. I'm Nick Caldry, the head of the department, and I'm delighted that for this first lecture of the year, we welcome as our speaker Professor Ingrid Volkmer from the University of Melbourne, and as discussant, Professor Mary Calder, Director of LSE's Civil Society and Security Research Unit. The relations between democratic institutions and media institutions have been a topic for debate at least since Kant and Hegel. But today they are subject to new pressures, new strains due to rapid changes in media and the related intensification of the global dimensions of politics. For 50 years or more, Jürgen Habermas's concept of the public sphere has been one of the few concepts available to help us understand what is going on with media's involvement in democracy and to evaluate whether what is going on comes close to what democracy actually needs. Earlier this year, we hosted the philosopher Nancy Fraser at a symposium where she developed a recent line of critical thinking about the public sphere, her idea of transnationalizing the public sphere. Tonight, we take the debate a stage further with a lecture by Ingrid Volkmer, who is Associate Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Melbourne, over the past decade, Professor Volkmer has been one of the sharpest commentators on the rapidly changing global configurations of civic solidarity, media cultures, and political identity formation. And tonight she will explore the arguments of her recent book, With Polity Press, The Global Public Sphere, copies of which are available for sale outside and which I strongly recommend. And we're also very pleased that one of the leading... <laughs> that one of the leading commentators on global civil society, Professor Mary Calder of LSE, will give us her thoughts as discussed immediately after the lecture. Ingrid will speak for about 45 minutes, Mary for around 15, and then there'll be plenty of time for questions and answers. And now, without more introduction, over to Professor Ingrid Volk. Thank you. I just need to... Um Put my slides on, just one sec. Does it work? Slides. Um, they were there. You may have pressed the wrong button. Anyway, while someone is hopefully sorting this out, I would like to say how honored I feel to be here to speak about the book, which actually has been conceptualized while I was. Uh, fortunate enough to spend um, a sabbatical here at the LSE. And I should also add that my work is of an interdisciplinary nature. Yes, I work in the media and communications program at Melbourne, but I've always tried to work across disciplines, so that is why I think it's also fantastic to be here, because so many scholars from the LSE have really influenced my work, and, you know, starting with Anthony Giddens, Roger Silverstone, to Nick Coldry and Sonia Livingston. So um, what I'm going to talk about today, and as you can imagine, it's just a nutshell of what I'm talking about in the book. I thought I'd pick this new space of deliberation um, and you know, lay out my ideas about how we can configure that space within these new forms of globalized um, structures we are all struggling with. And I feel that uh, the debate of the global public sphere is something which we have ignored 
I must say, in my discipline as well, media and communications, for such a long time that, you know, the Habermasian model seems to still be uh, guiding our understanding of these new complexities, which I think we need to overcome, and that's why I'm talking about this issue tonight, and hopefully uh, we have an interesting discussion afterwards. Now, can I move to my first slide? There it is. Okay. So, um, in his book, The Public and Its Problems, John Dewey remarked that in no two ages or places is there the same public. That was 1927. Dewey's observation, made in the early decades of the 20th century, relates to the transformation of the public sphere at a time where the traditional centrality of vibrant communication, community public life in the U.S. was still functional, but, and this is Dewey's point, already slowly dissolving. The traditional public life of local places, of town hall communities, was merging with larger, more centralized forms, which now began to ventilate public debate and shape public opinion, no longer as a local community reasoning, but in larger national, we might even say, mediated scopes. That was the time of the radio and newspapers. About 40 years later, Jürgen Habermas has identified a second major shift of public spheres, which now relate specifically to modern European nation-states. In this lens, the shift of public discourse towards further manufactured publicity and away from reasoned publicness has made room for strategically produced publicity of private interests. Such a second shift of, again, mediated public spheres has significantly weakened the public as a critically debating entity and, most importantly, a regulating deliberative force. Nancy Fraser suggests to reposition public spheres again, a few years later, not only within private and public discourse domains, uh, public discourse domains, but as segmented or fractured publics. Fraser proposes a dichotomy of weak and strong public discourse. Strong publics are those whose discourse encompasses both opinion formation and decision-making, meaning achieving legally binding decisions, and in weak publics, deliberative practice consists exclusively in opinion formation. These and many other carefully drafted notions of public spheres oscillate around the dialectic of private and public, weak and strong, fractured and mainstream online and offline spheres and have made important contributions to our understanding of the transformed parameter of recent public debate vis-à-vis nationally bounded forms, formations of legitimacy and accountability. However, these conceptions of public spheres seem to be no longer sufficient for assessing the parameter of democratic deliberation in today's non-national, non-territorial, fluid publics which emerge as multidirectional discourse spheres of threats disembedded from the traditional dialectic of public formations, embedded in shifting mediated centers, as Nicole Rie would argue, and rotating around what Luhmann might have described as autopoetic, self-directed discourse absorbing public engagement across national borders into a differentiated viral public system. It is an enlarged public space, which in my view specifically requires a rethinking of deliberation within emerging 
complex entanglements of multiple discourse geographies floating across all society types. These deliberative spheres emerge beyond the modern model of publicness, beyond the boundedness of national territories and also nationally bounded legitimacy regimes. The boundedness of these procedural mechanisms of public deliberation have become porous, as some argue, myself included, for decades. And the holes are widening fast. So it is time to assess the Habermasian notion of public deliberation within these new spaces in the aim to refine and, if need be, reposition the core strands of critical theory, discourse ethics, and egalitarian participation as, and this is Habermas' key area, normative binding legitimacy forces in today's globalized public. The critical debate of the Habermasian model of public sphere has quite early on addressed some of these porous openings. For example, the need of inclusion of otherwise fractured communities to overcome the powerful traditional dominance of the majority-minority nexus of Western nation states, which have been guided by Mufs and Ben Habib's work. A debate initiated by Craig Calhoun in the early 1990s has, in retrospect, led to a refinement of the conception of deliberation in the spectrum of different normative strata of pluralist, multicultural Western societies, as well as ad hoc social movements. Calhoun, 1992. I'm sure we all know that book. Others, this was also in the early 1990s, have argued for a thorough inclusion of the already emerging transnationalization of media in networks of neoliberal market regimes, which, so the authors claim, would establish a new relationship between the mediation of de facto institutionalized practices of mass communication on one hand and democratic politics on the other. About eight years later, we are now in 1999, Jürgen Habermas, even though only as a side remark, begins to also identify holes in his own original model and acknowledges public deliberation beyond the nation-state model. Specifically, discourse ethics of inclusion and transnational public formation, so he argues, might constitute an intermediary structure between the political system on one um, on one and the private sectors of the life world on the other. Habermas understands this process as a highly complex network that branches out into a multitude of overlapping international, national, regional, local and subcultural arenas. Habermas has identified these arenas as episodic publics, publics of particular events, and abstract publics of isolated readers, listeners, and viewers scattered across target geographical areas or even around the globe and brought together only through the mass media. This was one of the few occasions where a rescaling of deliberative formations within a scope of transnational publics appeared in Habermas' work. However, despite such an enlarged scope, public actors are still articulated in his work through modern social theory, which results in the assessment of non-national publics only, as Ulrich Beck might say, merely as a side effect of the otherwise undisputed centrality of modern national public spheres. Today we live in a different world. Our world is no longer a sphere of inter- or even transnational communicative extensions. 
Although nation states will not disappear, national public communicative space, if we like it or not, is increasingly disembedded, seamlessly streamed between servers and screens, and shared by peer-to-peer networks across all continents. It is a communicative sphere in the layout of spatial configurations and algorithms which amalgamate modern nation states as well as other society types involving so-called failed states like Syria, Afghanistan, and authoritarian states who, such as China, make a great effort to force communicative network structures back into the traditional mold of linearity and thus tightly bounded national control. Even China has to realize that geolocality is only an algorithm, an IP code, a digital interface which can be easily switched, switched, switched back and surpassed. However, our age is not only characterized by such a significant process of disembedding of public discourse, but this process is accompanied by the massive transformation <laughs> behind the scenes, I should add, of macro domains of institutional civil structures which we see happening in all world regions. Legitimacy and accountability within an international arena are no longer necessarily an outcome of deliberate deliberate discourse, but are, due to the lack of deliberative mechanism, quietly taken on by international polity regimes. Intergovernmental regimes, such as the G20 Consortium to the World Bank, as well as private regimes, such as rating agencies, begin to take on roles as legitimizing forces from rating national budgets, budgets even in Western nations, to approving national elections as recently in Kiev, to advancing deeper into even local governance structures, such as in the EU, without legitimizing force of a European public sphere. Despite these and other macrostructural transformations within a globalized society, It is surprising that challenges of public deliberation are often conceptually related back to the paradigm of modern publics, where, depending on conceptual approaches, the national and the transnational public either exist side by side or overlap. As Saskia Sassen has uh, remarked, and this was in 2006, the nation is the site of globalization. Communication infrastructures not only reach all world regions, but have gained an unprecedented globalized complexity. Hundreds of satellites, the exact number is unknown, as satellites are only the periphery of our, on the periphery of our research agenda, constitute the core backbone of our communication infrastructure. And here the slide of all the satellites we don't know about. In the early days of international communication in the 1960s, Satellites deliver television, radio, telephony from the global north to the south. Today, satellites are multi-level platforms and operate no longer mainly in patterns of big footprint patches, which looks like this, and just note the different patterns of communication from this to the next slide. But point-to-point communication and deliver thousands of audiovisual content channels, internet broadband, data transfer, and cloud communication to server networks located in all world regions. This is the cloud communication satellite image. Latest uh, generation, so-called EPIC satellite technology, which just emerged this year, this looks like now this, 
reveals a completely new pattern of even finer microgrids providing precise links for data mobility across multiple screens, helping us to stay connected while we move around the world. Google and Facebook will launch drones in the next years to reach even the remotest world regions. These giga corporations operate in the gray zone of regulatory no man's land in wide open spaces between traditional nationally bounded polities from antitrust to copyright and are unstoppable in their expansion into even further domains of our individual communicative worlds. Or in a Habermasian term, these are communicative systems which colonize and interpenetrate our life world spheres wherever we are in the world. Facebook has 1.3 billion users, more than the population of many states, and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg understands these shifts as an indicator for a new geopolitical order where, as he recently stated in the Financial Times, the world is moving from countries to companies. Based on these complex infrastructures targeting the spectrum of subjective mobility, it is not surprising that for today's youth generation, centers and peripheries of public communication no longer exist. Youth living in peripheries, such as in our Australian neighboring country, Papua New Guinea, which has until recently been one of the most secluded countries worldwide, now seamlessly engage via smartphones with their peers on all small islands, on small islands deep in the Pacific Ocean, as well as in New York, London, and Nairobi. Today's youth generation perceive public spheres as a simultaneous, always-on digital screen universe. When reviewing this deep-seated transformation, it seems that traditional paradigms of what Terry Rantanen describes as methodological internationalism, and I would like to add methodological globalism, are no longer suitable for illuminating the key domains of deliberative communication. There is no inter and trans anymore. It is a globalized communicative matrix, continuously and simultaneously accessible from all world regions. Within such a matrix, public communication appears no longer as a sphere, but as lines of subjective cartographies meandering across chosen intentionally Sorry, intentionally chosen sites of interest, of peer-to-peer -peer loyalties and agencies. And there's a, another pattern of communication which looks like that that has been uh, produced by Facebook and that nicely shows all these cartographies, I think. Um, within such a matrix, civic identity is no longer, as Castells once argued, situated between the self and the net within the framework of large-scale network conception, but in the reflexive spectrum of a subjective centralization of decentrality, producing a subjective universe of local, national, transnational flows, which are continuously negotiated in notions of shifting centers and peripheries from youth protests to, in remote places of rural Tunisia, which sparked the Arab Spring, to connected Occupy activism to Iran and recently Hong Kong. <coughs> These forms of engagement gain their discursive dynamic through an embeddedness in a globalized terrain which requires strategically arranged visual dimensions for gaining attention on worldwide screen connections. As the 17-year-old leader of the Hong Kong protest remarks, you need to get a kick out of it and it needs to be beautiful. 
first parameter of such a new reflective sphere within a globalized communicative matrix are appearing in outcomes of our international comparative study on global youth and media, notions of cosmopolitanism in the global public space, which will be concluded at the end of this year. We have asked more than 6,000 14 to 17-year-olds in nine countries, how they, in all, all, all continents, as you can see, <coughs> excuse me, how they use media, how they construct globalization and perceive civic identity. Results show that the intensity of merging of local, national, and globalized communication forms, that's the result, and television is the preferred medium for news in a parallel universe with Google News, they watch, they uh, access news through Google News often, MSN, Yahoo, where they actively engage. Responses reveal a relatively large degree of political interest in Japan, Germany, South Africa, and Kenya. However, findings show interesting axes, what I call axes, across all society types, which have made us label this generation as the generation of in-betweeners. Situated between skeptic worldviews world and trust, between notions of globalized risks and strong sense of world insecurity. When asked if they feel that the world today has become more insecure than at the time when their parents were young, 80% agree. It is not surprising that about 50% of our sample across all countries consider international political events more important than national and articulate a continuous lived parallelism, which I think is interesting, of national and global citizenship. And this is, shows that uh, parallelism. They distrust international politicians, however, retreat to the engagement in larger globalized political spheres, such environment, human rights, economy, wealth, and poverty. These are fine contours of interdependent public horizons among today's youth generation, which are, and this is important to realize, no longer central to the democratic nation state. They are also no longer central to other societies. Reviewing these phenomena, seems to reveal public communication is no longer porous, but is disembedded itself. As Axel Bruns has argued, the public sphere is decentralized across the network. It is a shifting terrain which dissolves the boundaries of the public sphere and extends public participation from society to a pan-societal environment experienced and lived by citizens themselves. It is a transformation towards subjective access determining and selecting engagement in a globalized interdependent sphere of chosen network formation which require a new understanding of angles of deliberation within a new reflexive spectrum meandering across all society types. As we know, the underlying model of the deliberative, of deliberative discourse principle is the centrality of modern democracy. Depending on the choice of paradigms, civic deliberative discourse is articulated in the utilitarian perspective of the 19th century as a participatory corrector of representative enlightened government, as suggested by John Stuart Mill, in the libertarian perspective as a sphere of justification, and in the perspective of critical theory as a powerful normative sphere of public reason enabled by an ethical framework of discourse procedures. 
These diverse conceptions of deliberation from Mill to Rawls to Habermas have positioned deliberation as a discourse space of in-betweenness between civic spheres and democratic institutions. It is a discursive space where judgments of the common good are negotiated between citizens and the state. Fishkin writes that a collective process of deliberation occurs where the group has a reasonable chance to form its collective considered judgments. It is a process where rival positions get an extended hearing, and in this sense, the same information is available to all. They also participate in a context which is small enough that they each can credibly believe that this is his or her individual, that his or her individual voice counts. In more general terms, this definition situates deliberation in the general scope of discursive practice where each subjective and collective positions are subject to change through such a deliberative practice, norms, rules, or decisions that result from reason-based agreements among citizens are considered as legitimate. Dryjack's conception of discursive democracy is a broad approach to shared set of concepts, sets of concept categories and ideas that provide its adherents within, with a framework for making sense of situations, embodying judgments, assumptions, capabilities, dispositions, and intentions. Deliberation in this space engages with powerful pressure for political action, for example, in context of violence and genocide, and growing demands for justification of state interference, or, and I should add, this also becomes an issue of justification of non-interference. These moral adjustments to the sovereignty of a state are in particular important as transnational publics deliberate on issues of injustice and make them public with often moral implications on government. The political and humanitarian crisis in Syria is an example for this macro-structure of deliberation where moral obligations to interfere emerge, however non-interference is justified. Live video footage reporting of violence and demands of justice constitute magnified deliberative discourse beyond the traditional modern order of deliberation. In cases where approaches attempt to identify deliberative spheres in spatial contexts, these are considered as cyber deliberation. Quite often, these debates magnify the communicative deliberation within the virtual space without identifying the linkages of these spatial forms of deliberation to not only national or even transnational public spheres. Other approaches position the transnationalization of deliberation in the unbounded complexity of a global civil society in an affected arena, which allows to overcome the modern linear order of deliberation through what the authors more like Bassett and Smith, more openly describe as a space for critical reflection and effective expression where discourse relates to the coexistence of both reason-giving but also effect. Conceptions of deliberative discourse have recently emerged which assess the enlarged dynamic communicative space of technology-centered interaction and due to this lens lens are sometimes understood as a somewhat one-dimensional sphere of specific digital or online deliberation. 
Quite often the idea of traditions of rational deliberative discourse is broadly adopted in these one-dimensional network contexts and in consequence it is assumed that deliberative network engagement is either an alternative sphere of deliberation or due to the boundedness of this ideal model restricted to a territorially of nationally shared space. The dialectic between the national and the spatial of the traditional model of deliberative discourse has been problematized already in the early days of the Internet, and it has been argued that the utopian vision of the Internet as a worldwide agora has a great potential to reshape democracy, which, however, is undermined by the harsh reality of lawsuits, regulations, and so on. More recently, conceptual approaches assessing online deliberation um, so, uh, online deliberation are more critical and it has been argued that the revolution normalization frame of online deliberation is too narrow and one-dimensional. Wright argues that the de deliberative potential of the internet has not been fully explored as online research often related to traditional definitions of politics mm -hmm. with normative underpinnings that may not hold in the context of new media. However, it is necessary to broaden the frameworks of deliberation in context of the outline structures of interdependence, where the common good is shifting within secluded horizons of public cartographies. The discursive process of negotiating individual and collective judgments as reason-based Agreements is no longer related to a bounded civic collective, but fluctuating across thematic spaces and loyalties of broad, unbounded communicative spheres, which articulate new types of normative structures. Deliberative spaces are ingrained in these fluid public interdependent geographies of dynamic as asymmetrical networked spheres where normative consent shifts along centralities and peripheries around communities, events, and conflicts. Deliberative spheres emerge within a new in-betweenness, no longer between citizen and the state, but between digital engagement of choice, the like it, click and follower stream, and live world locality. Such an unfolding interdependent dimension of public deliberation is only on the surface a space of social media or digital communication. It is a multi-layered spectrum of subjectively chosen authentic communicative forms incorporating traditional local dimensions of deliberative cultures which are now embedded in deliberative poli uh, public practices across geographies of network spheres. One example for this is virtual activism. Intensifying publicness through simultaneously enhancing geographically dispersed local discourse across transnationally accessible platform-centered activism of resistance and engagement. Examples are virtual activism in context of human rights abuse in China, emerging through social networking sites and intensively engaging through audiovisual clips on YouTube, which as a consequence reappear in national mainstream media in the US as well as in highly specific blogs. The post-election conflicts in Iran, the Green Revolution, is another example where discursive connectivity across diverse geographical sites and the trends transnational visibility of local conflicts in a region which is on the periphery of mainstream media resulted in a change of government action. The Occupy movement, with simultaneous protests across world regions, is yet another example of a field of deliberation 
as is virtual activism, a virtual platform registered as an NGO providing support and training for launching transnational campaigns. A second example for a deliberative public, uh, for deliberative public practices across geographies of network spheres is direct democracy, demanding day-to-day governance accountability through digital fluid transparency. An example is also the Pirate Party movement, founded in 2010 with the aim to promote direct liquid democracy, freedom of information and open content. The Pirate Party movement operates, just to illustrate the transnational scope, across about 50 countries from Argentina, Australia to Greece, UK, Norway, Tunisia, Ukraine, Uruguay, Venezuela. The Pirate Party is an example for a new form of political agency where decisions are reached less through traditional representative committees but rather deliberately through discursive and egalitarian online liquid democracy enhancing its influence through the strengths of public interdependence across its transnational nodes. A third example is the powerful dimension of transparency, which also goes beyond traditional forms of publicness. Deliberative transparency relates to a non-discursive release of facts and issues. Although this field of deliberation is often associated with WikiLeaks, it is this deliberative form of transparency, for example, on uh, initiatives in context of new forms of civic deliberation, which is relevant. About a week after the outbreak of the post-election crisis in Kenya, a small group of concerned Kenyans located throughout the diaspora came together to launch an online campaign called Ushahidi, which some of you might know, to spread awareness about the violence devastating their country. Besides text messaging, blogs, Ushahidi was incorporated into Google Maps and allows users to zoom in uh, any satellite images of Kenya with a tool for users via mobile phones of internet browsers to report incidents of violence on the map, add photos, videos, and written content that document where and when violence occurs. As the authors know, the authors are Goldstein and Rotish who have studied Ushahidi, this reporting of violence was a new form of public engagement of frustrated citizens not only in Kenya but also in the Kenyan transnational diaspora. Reviewing these examples suggests that the core shift takes place, core shift of deliberation, by disentangling the Habermasian core domains of deliberation, discourse, validation, and verification from the spheres of congruent direct interaction in the medium of a reasoned engagement towards the connected subject holding the control screens of reflexive discourse across chosen geographies of participation, These domains are scattered across digitally available options across the communicative matrix in a new deliberative geography. I can engage live on Facebook with local NGOs in South America, validate outcomes with Greenpeace archives in Amsterdam, and verify on Twitter sites by engaging with the chair of the International Panel on Climate Change and, as an outcome, vote for the Green Party in Germany. Nuanced dimensions of the reallocation of the Habermasian core domain of deliberation along such a horizontal stretching process become visible when assessing conceptions of what we might call decoupling processes 
of modern state society nexus, which have been addressed primarily in sociology and political science for some time. For example, a first debate of decoupling of the state society nexus is situated in political theory and in recent years has mapped the accelerated shifts towards conceptions of transnational polities and governance structures beyond conventional modern state-centric models. These conceptions in political science frame the emerging post-territorialized space in a number of different paradigmatic lenses, through the lens of civil society, that Mary Calder's work, through the lens of post-international world order as a world statehood, which understands the national or the territorial state itself as a sphere of globalization. It should be noted that not only traditional Westphalian states, but also failed state models are incorporated into these conceptions. Ferguson and Mansbach argue that overall state-centric theories and models account for only a small part of what happens in the world and at worst are devices built on sand. The authors argue that the boundaries that separate territorial states from one another no longer demarcate political spaces based on economic, social, or cultural interests, as each of these has its own boundaries that in the face of localization and globalization are less and less compatible with the border of states. Various globalization approaches, this is a second debate, have addressed decoupling processes in terms of deliberation in larger terms. The first author who comes to mind is Anthony Giddens, whose approach to relativistic globalization uh, as a stretching process has contributed to the understanding of the disembedding process which relates not only to the coupling of modern national boundedness, but specifically to public communication within the complexity of globalization. Giddens already in 1991 argued at a time where national mass media still prevailed, direct-to-home satellite delivery and the internet were just emerging, that globalization constitutes the modes of connection connecting different social contexts, but also regions which become networked across the Earth's surface as a whole. In consequence, Giddens' focus of globalization on globalization relates to the intensification of worldwide relations which link distant localities in such a way that local happenings are shaped by events occurring many miles away and vice versa. His visionary notion of time-space distanciation has helped to understand, for example, the breaking news genre used by transnational satellite providers such as CNN a few years later, which through Western, in particular U.S. satellite news dominance, already link localities through live information from almost any point worldwide. It seems that public communication in today's advanced stage of globalization diverts from Giddens' visionary approach at the time in two ways. Firstly, globalized public communication is not so much characterized by intensification, but by the parallelism of multiple transnationally fluctuating densities, which is a quite specific and highly differentiated terrain of political engagement. Secondly, public communication is no longer a stretching process, where in Giddens' model, modern nation-states dominate the stretching process in terms of media through multinational corporations to other sectors of stretching influence. Today, the power of stretching is transformed into powerful contraction, where not access but use of multiple forms of content and discourses between observing and engaging in networks create deliberative spheres 
within reflexive subjective situatedness. A third decoupling debate is with cosmopolitanism, which, as Beck argues, integrates transnational conflicts and commonalities into the everyday practices. Through the lens of the second modernity, public spheres emerge in the spectrum of global public awareness or risk cosmopolitanism, which integrates transnational conflicts and commonalities into the everyday practices. We could argue that such a reflexive appropriation of the increasing globalized density of subjective spheres is specifically interwoven with, inter with public and political communication, not as a consequence of modernity, but as a, a consequence of advanced network communication, drawing not only modern, but also other societies into this reflexivity space. A fourth, a fourth uh, debate identifies the decoupling of the state-society nexus in terms of the transnational national dichotomy and spaces of mobility across public-private formations of the tra traditional public sphere model, Shella Uri, 2003. These hybrid publics are stretching across deterritorialized private-public terrains of modern state uh, sphere, sorry, modern sphere conception. These new hybrids of private and public and public and private spheres do not automatically imply a decline in politics or a collapse of democracy, but may instead point to a prol proliferation of multiple mobile sites for potential democratization, so shall and Uri argue in 2003. However, in context of not only transna a transnational scope of communication, but a globalized communication matrix, domains of Habermasian deliberation seem to reappear in new power domains of subjective reflexive spheres between three angles. And this is my framework, which I would like to um, uh, introduce. Networks of centrality and centrality of networks and the resonance sphere. The term of network centrality refers here in a broad way to the network structure of centralized discourse in, in the subjective sphere of monitoring of public discourse. The second sphere, centrality of networks, relates to the sphere of subjective discursive engagement. So with these are the two angles. One is the observing the world angle and one is the engagement angle and one is uh, network of centrality and other centrality of networks. That's the actor sphere, engaging in viral publics, interacting with equals of shared interest in such a spatial landscape. This sphere of centrality of networks relates in a broader context to public engagement through chosen platforms as continuous discursive and interactive reference points, but also engaging in social media and blog sites. Such a horizontal public interdependence of the constant monitoring through networks of centrality and the centrality of networks as the engagement sphere unfolds deliberative spaces across world regions, political regimes, and society types through reflective connectivity and resonance as spaces of public interdependence which are anchored and reflected in uh, civic spheres from Bangkok, Mexico City, Paris, or New York. The dialectic of such a reflexive geography between networks of centrality and centrality of networks and resonance spaces as the third, com third component across all world regions, however, in, appears in all world regions, however, in varying fabrics and patterns. 
for example, networks of centrality, the monitoring sphere, and social media as centrality of networks, the engagement sphere can be observed in conflicts where national media in Syria provide censored information. However, citizens have access to social media forms which allow to authentically engage in a quite different conflict scenario. This emerging public space can also be observed in European conflicts where, again, national media serve as networks of centrality, providing national frames. However, centrality of networks are used for active engagement in transnational cross-European sites, resonating in protests in Athens and Berlin. These deliberative practices in the triangle of network centrality, centrality of networks and resonance sphere emerge also in the context of WikiLeaks disclosure practices. WikiLeaks could be considered as a network of centrality and in some world regions where WikiLeaks is full, fully accessible and publicly discussed. The platform might be considered as a centralized network, the engagement sphere in other regions where the site is only used by those who are politically engaged, who upload information and have access to otherwise banned web content and, um, and are transnational actors. It is not so much the reintroduction of the subject within deliberative discourse of a pluralist society, but the situating of the subject not only within a pluralist public sphere of one society, but within reflexive life world scopes of strategically chosen trajectory, sorry, trajectories of network communication. In this sense, the subject could be understood as a civic self situated in a transnational public sphere, Terrain. In this context, it is important to identify the communicative space of such a subjectively centered deliberative discourse in broader terms and incorporate new forms of political communication which not only apply to regions in the tradition of modernity. It is such a subjective communicative space which posits deliberation in an increasingly interdependent but also inclusive and interactive sphere incorporating various forms of public cultures such as conceptual mapping is needed for a deeper understanding of new communicative spheres of a global civil society. The Canadian media theorist Marshall McLuhan once coined the term of the global village. It was a visionary idea at a time of a divided Cold War world and of the first satellites enabling the occasional live coverage of one event across continents. But it was also the time where the image of the Earth appeared behind Neil Armstrong's first, step on the mo first steps on the moon, in which inspired the term of the global village. McLuhan's term of the global village meant an imagination of the world not as a rational, linear, visual space, but a neo-acoustic space. In today's advanced network society, this is no longer a simultaneous um, acoustic space, but a resonance space of simultaneous reasoning across lively communicative domains. It might be time to begin chart these new resonance spaces within the global public sphere and to make a contribution to a better world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ingrid, for a fascinating talk and a beautiful image to end with. If you want to come back yeah. to here, and then we'll pass over to Mary for her comments. It? Wherever you want to speak from, Mary. Why not? Do it properly. Use the stage. Um, 
So I, I, I really like Ingrid's idea of reflective cosmopolitan deliberation. And what I want to do is, in a way, try to translate this into my own language, which is about global civil society, and to ask about the current possibilities for, if you like, a Habermasian public sphere for critical, rational discourse. So my conception of global civil society has many parallels uh, with such a version of, public, of the public sphere, and I want to try to explain how I arrived at it. Um, actually, I see some of the students in the room who were here at my lecture this morning where I described much the same thing. Um, so what I've looked at is the evolution of the concept of civil society, which has really changed its meaning in quite dramatic ways. So in the early Enlightenment period, civil society fundamentally meant a constitutional order, a society based on the rule of law, where the rule of law was based on agreement among the citizens. And that idea of a civil society was very much the same idea that you find among the Greeks and Romans, but also in classical Islam. And then a break with that idea came in the 19th century, particularly with Hegel and later Marx, who identified civil society with bourgeois society. It had something to do with capitalism. And it was Hegel, for, for the Enlightenment thinkers, civil society was the state, but it was a state based on constitutional arrangements. Uh, whereas Hegel was the first to say civil society is not the state, it's the space between the state and the family. Um, it's the space where, it, for him it was the space of freedom, it's the space where reason and passion are reconciled. And then it took another change in the 20th century with Gramsci, the Italian communist, <coughs> who shifted it to a definition which is nearer to what we understand it today, which is that it's not the market either. <coughs> it's the sphere of culture and ideology. It's between the market, the state, and the family. So he took another narrowing of the concept of civil society, and for him his preoccupation was in trying to understand why it was so difficult to have a revolution in a country like Italy which had a powerful civil society. And I think it's changed yet again um, at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century because we tend to understand civil society as non-party politics, as groups and associations that break the boundaries of the state. That, so it's not just groups and associations, but it's beyond the nation state in some way. Um, and, um, do you know, I forgot my book. I, want, I need it. I'm taking it back. Um, and I, what I wanted to say is that at thinking about all this, I realise there's a common core of meaning in all of these definitions. And what the common core of meaning is about is that, yes, civil society is a society characterised by laws, where laws are based on deliberation and agreement, but civil society is the space 
where those laws and rules and policies are negotiated, struggled over, manufactured, whatever. It's that space, and that space has moved, rather like uh, Ingrid was quoting Dewey, who said the publics have moved. So in the 18th century, it was parliaments, it was coffee houses, as Habermas famously explained. In the 19th century, it was bourgeois society, it was the marketplace. And in the 20th century, when Gramsci was writing, it was the workers' movements, it was mass political parties. And by the end of the 20th century, it it had moved into these non-party spheres. Because what tends to happen is what Habermas observed, is that every free space, relatively free space, where people act according to, uh, with a sense of equality, where they argue with each other, where they discuss and where reason rules, spaces where that can happen constantly get occupied and controlled. And so you always have to find a new space. And I, I, I brought along, because there was so much talk about the public sphere, Um, a a quotation from Habermas who who came in in rather recently, I think it's the book edited by Calhoun to think that civil society has regained this public sphere and he says what's meant by civil society today in contrast to the liberal and the Marxist traditions no longer includes the economy and markets, I'm skipping a bit, rather its institutional core comprises those non-governmental and non-economic connections and voluntary associations that anchor the communication structures of the public sphere in the society component of the life world. So I could go on, but he's basically saying civil society is about associations, about the non-party politics I was talking about. But actually, I think that sphere is already becoming colonised. What we've got now is no longer free spaces, but increasingly NGOs. Uh, I don't mean to belittle NGOs, but NGOs are funded by states and private companies. They're institutionalised, professionalised, and there's a sort of jargon. So the free debate no longer takes place in those spaces. So where does it take place? And this is a real discussion. Does it take place, which is what Ingrid is suggesting, through the emergence of the internet, through this new virtual world. And this is where I think, I may be wrong, but I think I might take issue, because I'm not sure it does take space, take place there. And I'd like to mention two sort of, two examples, uh, which I've discussed with my colleague Sabine. Uh, One example is Ellie Paris's idea of the filter bubble. What he says is actually the internet is already colonized by big companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google. And what happens when you use them is that everything is filtered for you. There are various algorithms and they choose what you see is what they think you want to see. And what that means is that every time you go to Google, you get reinforced in your own views. He shows an example where when he tries to look at political 
he's, he's progressive, so only Labour Party views come up, no Conservative views, for example. And what you see happening is that actually, not only, I think, because of this sort of ways in which what we see is filtered in, in other ways, uh, but also because actually in the internet you can say things that you would never say face-to-face to people. And so actually it reinforces prejudice rather than opening up a critical space. So that's one example, and I think that's something we should be really concerned about. But the other is a more interesting one. It comes from Nick's student, Paolo, Uh who has written a wonderful book, which I do recommend to you, called Tweets in the Street. I think it was based on his PhD with you, wasn't it? And Paolo's talking about how we talk about Occupy, Indignados, um, Tahir Square as Facebook or Twitter revolutions. But what did it actually mean? What do we mean when we say that? And actually what's significant about these experiences in the square is the human contact, is the fact that people come together and get engaged in deliberative assemblies. But what Paolo says is, it's not simply that social media helps you organize or that everybody uses it. It acts as a kind of invisible... He he uses the term choreographer, like in a dance. We don't see it, but how it works is already managed through these social media tools. And what's managed is not only how everybody dances in the square, but also the kind of emotional narrative that's associated with it, the music, as it were, is channeled through the social media. And I think that's a fascinating, um, a fascinating example. And what um, he suggests is, so what, what is the implication that we draw from that? Do we draw what you are seeing, actually? It's not true that these social media networks are networks or swarms or that they're horizontal, that they're leaderless. Nor is it true that they have leaders, they actually have an, what he calls from Bauman a liquid leadership, an invisible leadership that's dancing, that's choreographing all this that's happening. So what do we conclude from that? Do we conclude actually we need them to become visible so we know who's who and who's doing what? Or do we conclude that we shouldn't have leaders and this is wrong? And I think what he's saying is actually we're just at the beginning of understanding all this and what we really need is new concepts <laughs> to try to... Which maybe yeah. it's a cop-out, but I, I think he's absolutely right. We're, we're, we're in a very sort of qualitatively new situation as we were when print technology was invented and we really need to develop new concepts. And I do think Ingrid has made a beginning. So that's where I'll end. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, we'll go on just a fraction after 8 o'clock because obviously we did lose some time earlier on. Uh, I'll come back to that time. announcement I'll make later, explaining to you what was going on there. Um, but we have time for questions, and there are roving mics, and uh, we welcome questions from anyone. 
to Ingrid and of course also to Mary if there's a bit either. You want to wait for the mic and say who you are, obviously. Yeah, <coughs> good evening. Um, actually, it's just following on to Mary, but I'd welcome both comments. Um, Ivor Gabe of University of Sussex. Yesterday's Guardian had a bit. I, I was, had, it, had Mary made her intervention a couple of days ago, I, might, I would have nodded furiously. But yesterday's Guardian had a very interesting story from Tanzania. The Tanzanian government had decided to allow a multinational company to develop some Maasai lands for a game park, safari, etc., etc. There was a global campaign, 38 degrees, vase, etc., 2 million posts. And in yesterday's Guardian, it said, as a direct result of that, the Tanzanian government had pledged never to use Maasai lands. Now, however... Is that an exception, or is that an indication that there is a global public sphere and it's functioning, and that there is a genuine global democracy being built in cyberspace? Yeah, I think uh, that's a fantastic example, actually, for exactly the space I'm trying to assess through these models. Um, and I think what we... what. Ha- I think we we require finer lines of conceptual frameworks to really understand these sorts of processes. And what I tried to explain in my paper here was this form of networks of centrality, centrality networks and resonance. And in a way, that's a very nice example for this form of deliberative triangle. It's a working term. It's not perfect, I know, but it's a start to kind of, well balance out and understand the, the, the not the balances but the structures of, of, of this uh, example you're talking about. Another example is and a student in Melbourne showed that to me there is, I wanted to play this here but I was told it doesn't work on the, it's a little Twitter film where you can see you know when that um, black youth in, uh, what is that, somewhere in the US was killed, was like uh, Ferguson, 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 exactly so there is a, a Twitter uh, sequence where you can see when that story broke in the U.S. and how rapidly it spread across the world. I mean, like in, within seconds. And you saw lights and, and tweets illuminating across all continents. And that is a very nice visual as well for these forms of processes, which they are not the same, I know, but they are all sitting in this new deliberative space, which, again, we haven't really conceptualized yet. And I think there, and Ushahidi is another example. I mean, what I spoke about in my um, talk here, it's, um, you know, these amazing websites where you can map violence uh, incidents in countries where there was not such a thing before. Another example is, um, I mean, yes, Arab Spring, and, you know, it's not Twitter revolution, I know, but what is, for me, so interesting with the Arab Spring is that it has been sparked in rural Tunisia where nobody ever before was really concerned if a fruit seller sets himself on fire. All of a sudden it was on Facebook because they protested in this village. Then, again, that's the process we need to follow. Then educated, Western educated youth in um, in Tunis saw that these images on their Facebook sites and they then began hit the button and that became viral in a way. So I think when we talk about these processes, yes it's deliberation in the context I've explained that's very vague I know and it's very broad but it shows that well it's, it's a cascading process too, it's a scalar and cascading process so somebody needs to monitor these things like the young people in um, Tunis 
before they posted whatever happened in uh, you know Zidi Buzid or whatever that small village was in Tunisia before. Without them, that wouldn't have been viral, uh, and the, the Arab Spring wouldn't have happened. So that's that's the, the, the spaces I wanted to. Thanks. Did you want to add anything quickly to that? Because we've got some more questions coming up. Well, perhaps I, I definitely have a different view, but I'll maybe come back and yes, and okay. and let you ask another question. We have a question and then, there, and then there was another one. This would be nice question. Thank you. Oh, um, I'm just going to describe what you have there is you're describing follow the lights and you know I'm wondering perhaps follow the money as we've heard in the past or follow the power struggle uh, as part of your framework and my case in point is might surprise a few people but there was a lecture here a few I think last week where they had startups I think it was and somebody from Sherry I guess was her name was presenting LinkedIn, uh, I guess she was on the board or something of that nature, and the paradigm there was she was trying to convince the crowd that the new trend is we're not going to help all the entrepreneurs. Instead, we're going to choose which entrepreneurs we think are going to be successful, and then we'll help those, and then those will create jobs and so on and so forth. My point here is that there's a suddenly the largest player, as you had described earlier, the Googles and the Facebooks, whatever, are starting to take some kind of powerful uh, role that, you know, I just kind of wonder how that plays out in your framework and, and what your comments might be on that. Yeah, well, of course they do. And honestly, I mean, besides that book about Twitter and, and the tweets in the streets and a few, one, uh, one or two other books about, I mean, Google in a sort of, you know, popular way, I'm not aware of any research being done on Google. Google is a totally blank space in our uh, research area. Not much is done, maybe some here and there, but not as it should be because it's such a major player. Um, and I think also we should address, yes, the power you're uh, talking about, but we also should address actually um, the public service roles in a way which Google takes on. I mean, who could navigate the Internet without going to Google? Nobody can. Yes, we all know it's a neoliberal, it's a you know, corporate capitalist um, uh, uh, company uh, and owned by individuals, but it's... Um, taking on these important roles in, within the globalized space. And I think we need to assess, reassess this understanding of public service and maybe find new structures for public service in order to, in a way, counterbalance these corporations. And I think that's really something also we need to talk about. And, you know, they are there. We need these, we need these spaces and we need these navigation sites. But we need, as has been uh, said earlier, we need, you know, I mean, non-commercial organizations to fill that space, which we don't have. And nobody has the money. Public service broadcasters don't, or, or organizations don't have the money to uh, do yeah. that. I'm going to take three questions together now to try and accelerate. All oh, right, okay. Um, Sabine, you had a question, then Sonia, and then the guy there, and then we'll come back to more. We'll pack as many as we can, okay, but three for now. I actually don't have a question. I just have a comment. So I'm not from media and communication. I'm in the civil society and human security research unit, so I don't know much about the whole media discourse. But I agree with Ingrid's last point that I don't find many exciting books except for actually Paolo's book, um, which is really convincing for me and helpful for thinking about civil society. 
Um, so having said that, I actually now address to Ingrid, I think what needs to be more distinguished is actually uh, between protest and delibera- deliberation, Absolutely. and these two concepts seem to be rather mixed up. So if I see how tweets spread around the world, that's, that's interesting, but it doesn't help me to understand the political world and so on and so forth. So maybe in the media discourse there needs to be a clearer distinction between different kinds of concepts, protest, deliberation, what do we mean by civil society, just as well as in our discourse, we needed a clear distinction between NGOs and civil society, and then think, so what do we mean by civil society, what do we mean by NGOs, and are they the same? So this is what I would suggest also maybe in your further reconceptualization. For instance, about Ushahidi, what is most interesting, I don't think that people can actually put information up there, but they are able to actually produce their own concepts, and that is amazing about this. So what people can do is they can produce new words, so to say, coming out of their lived reality. Great this point. Was a comment. Sorry, not Thank you very much. It's a great point. Nonetheless, we'll move to Sonia. She probably doesn't need to introduce herself, but um, she should. Sonia Livingstone, Department of Media <laughs> and Communication here. Um, yes, Ingrid, I think somewhere in the middle of your um, lecture you said something like um, the Internet's potential for democracies being undermined by lawsuits and regulation. And I just wondered if you could elaborate a little on how you're thinking about regulation in that sense and whether, to come back to Mary's point, you would want also to see regulation as perhaps, um, as in the European Commission now, attempting to break up the um, dominance of uh, such as Google and just, just to kind of unpack a little bit how you see regulation playing out in that global public sphere. Okay, and then we'll just take your question, please, and then answer the three together. Wait, you're going to get the... um... So I was just curious to hear your thoughts on um, another aspect of the power dimension is how reasoning itself seems to have kind of broken down. I mean, this is Move's point. Um, So as we enter into the information economy, people are realizing the value of um, fonts, Indic languages, so different kinds of walls seem to be coming up, different kinds of agonistics are coming up. So is there any potential in this unifying spirit which is implicit in your global public sphere? Thanks. Okay, thanks. Ingrid, and of course, Mayor, if you want Um, to. Yeah, about regulation. Um, Well, regulation has a new (coughs) ring now in the Snowden age, of course. Well, I think there are so many gray zones where we see these transnational corporations operate. And I think the issue is not so much that today in the digital world there are these gray zones, but there have always been gray zones when it comes to international communication. This is not new. It has existed in the time of satellites, honestly. Um, It's the same um, structure with satellites. We have, well, we have one... Intelsat, one major international uh, huge satellite chain which delivers most of our day-to-day communication, uh, what I showed here on on that slide, but it's a commercial company. There is no public service and there is no non-commercial satellite organization. Um, Satellites have not been regulated like that and there is, I mean, in Europe we have the um, Television Without Borders regulation which has regulated satellite uplinks within the European space, but not internationally. We see that with uh, larger companies also internationally. There is no regulation to stop monopolies on a global scale. And I think this is now the crucial issue with 
you know, with Google and Amazon and many others, they operate in that zone. Regulation also relates to um, privacy rights. And when we talk about Snowden, yes, that's in the press and that's, you know, being discussed around the world, but there are so many other um, privacy issues which are not addressed publicly and where companies... Uh, you know, produce apps to monitor whatever somebody is doing online. And there's this WhatsApp, um, I can't remember, there's a certain WhatsApp site as well where I can exactly monitor who Nick is calling, Nick is uh, texting and whatever. As, as, long, as soon as I have his phone number, I, I can follow that up. So I think regulation is really um, an important new space and but I think it's, um, it's not really functional at the moment. And talking about Google um, in Europe, um, well, there was an article in the Financial Times recently which actually amused me a bit because they said, well, you know, in the U.S. Uh, and everywhere else, people uh, or companies are um, governed in specific ways, but in Europe... Um, you know, there are lots of lobbyists in, in Brussels, and actually politicians feel honored when Google lobbyists approach them and, you know, try to work with them. So I felt, well, that's maybe a specifically European angle, but um, it is very difficult to, never mind that example, but it's very difficult to, you know, come up with sufficient regulation in these spaces, and that's something that needs to be addressed. What about the point about the fracturing? Of yeah, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Okay. And honestly, I totally agree. But we also need to keep in mind that discourse and deliberation has cultural traditions. And what we have in the West, yes, is the Habermasian model of engaging in discourse, in reasoned discourse. In China, it might be something else. It might be harmony as deliberation and discourse within that spectrum of harmony. In other countries, in Arab countries, it's a completely different discourse here. And now what we see in this globalized context, it's all parallel. And people engage with each other. And I think that's where we need to step in and find ways to make people interact coming from very different perspectives and viewpoints, but also from different cultural traditions. Did you want to add Yeah, I just... Well, I wanted really to say two things. First, I agree with Ingrid about regulation, but we do need a rational, critical discussion about what sort of regulation. So that's important. But secondly, going back to the question over there about the example of the Maasai um, in The Guardian... Of course, social media is absolutely great for mobilizing protests. And for every wonderful example, there's a horrible example, like ISIL or like extreme nationalists in different parts of the world. And my point was not about protests. My point, because, in a way, Ingrid is really addressing the idea of the public sphere and the idea of a free space where people can discuss and come to conclusions. My point was really that because of the control by big companies and because they're interested in making money rather than in influencing the public sphere, they try to give you information they think you want, which is actually not what's important for rational critical debate. You want to hear what you don't, shouldn't want to hear. You should hear what you don't want to hear, because that's the only way you can really have a reasoned debate about the future. And that's the problem I was mm. alluding to. Well, we're running out of time, but I just want to, in order to wrap it up, I just want to draw on that point, because it struck me that there was a, there's an implicit 
not tension between the two positions which you put. That, uh, Ingrid, you're emphasising a resonance space as a sort of positive accumulator of good vibes of deliberative rationality and whatever. And that's a very important way because it gets, it allows for randomness, it allows for multidirectionality, but it still allows for something positive to emerge. But you, as you were just saying, you're dealing also with the questions of silencing. Mm. Silencing happening through pre-organisation of a space. And surely if we're thinking about resonance spaces, we must imagine new arts or sciences of silencing. Yeah. Exactly. Not just surveillance, but actually closing down this space, which will take new, much more complex forms. And we may be looking at examples of precisely how this is happening in a country such as China, which is operating Weibo as a massive resonance space where it can observe the resonances and control them in certain ways. How would you respond to that sceptical argument? Well, is it a danger that we have to... Yeah, I think it is, but I think um, it's also... Coming back to Sonia's question about regulation, I think it has to do with the regulatory regime, who is in charge of taking content off. And just, you were talking about ISIL, I don't know if any of you has seen these videos on, on um, YouTube. Actually, I did, because I feel we have to, because um, specifically in, in Australia, we have students from Malaysia who keep telling me that their peers are being recruited by ISIL in Malaysia. So there is this well, there is this sort of sphere existing where, um, you know, these things happen. And I, I uh, watched some of these uh, clips, not the beheadings, obviously, but I was asking myself, why is it that Facebook and YouTube are, in a way, helping to magnify these processes and empowering them through these forms of magnification on, on their sides? Why isn't there any, again, regulation? Why isn't there any, you know, procedure to take this content off and who rules what sort of content is being taken off. So I think these are the probably um, structures we need to think about. Please join us for a drink, continue the discussion, and thank you very much for coming and thank you very much.